We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, so if you want to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, if you're a part of our Discover Emmaus lunch, or if you're one of the Emmaus folks that's helping out with that lunch as a table host, um, we, because of Children's Church, we're going to be meeting over in the metal building just around the corner. She'll go out the door, out this building, and turn back to the right. There'll be signs and, and people to point you back that direction, and so if you're a part of that lunch, just head toward the spotlight. What? Not, nope, just kidding. Where the spotlight was. <laughs> head that direction, and, uh, and it, will, uh, it will lead you that direction. So before we get into what we're talking about the, this morning, a lot of times we'll read the verses, and then we'll do some sort of transition to kind of get everybody oriented with what we're talking about. So like last week, we uh, talked about the guy who walked into Petco with his longhorn steer. You know, we'll tell some story like that or some transition. I just want to let you know right now, no transition of that type this morning. And, and the reason being, here in a minute when we read the verses, we're just going to go right into the material, right into talking about them, because these verses are hard. They bring up hard topics, they're hard teachings, and I don't want to do anything that just takes us away from, we just need to get right into what we're going to talk about, because these type of topics that we're addressing this morning, lust adultery, divorce, lying. These are topics that, for many of us, come in very close and, and very personal. There's a chance that you could come here this morning and you could hear all of this and you could go home loaded down with guilt or you could think the, the result of me being here is I need to try harder to get my life together or be a better person. And we we want to focus you toward Jesus. There are two pillars that I want you to hold on to this morning before we ever get into the verses. And the first one is this, that God is faithful, that he is worthy. So over everything we're gonna talk about today, whether it applies directly to your life or maybe only indirectly, you may be here this morning because you're at a point in life that you just need to be reminded that God is faithful, that he is worthy, and that he loves you. And so over everything we face, over everything we're dealing with, that you would know that that is true. And also that you would know that when we experience God's faithfulness, it brings a freedom to live as his people. You read the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, or you hear what Jesus says in the New Testament, I want you to know that's how free people live. These are not restrictions that God places on us to take us away from the good life, this is how God says, this is how my people will live. They live with simplicity, they live with holiness, they live with integrity, that this is what God's word is taking us to today. And so on a day like today, when we have the Discover Emmaus lunch, and like, oh, there's a lot of guests here and people who are considering being a part of the church, there's that very small part that says, maybe we shouldn't tackle something so hard. But I can just tell you, if you're gonna be a part of Emmaus, we don't wanna go around those issues, we wanna go through them. And we want to know what God's word has to say about these things. And so that's what we're going to seek to do this morning, depending upon God's spirit. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Here's what it says. Jesus is telling the people, You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray together, Emmaus. Father, we feel a great weight this morning as we approach these verses. That God, we approach them not on our own strength or our own understanding, God, but we approach them as those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. God, that you have laid out for us what the good, flourishing, full life looks like. That this is how free people live. And God, that we would know what that looks like. Father, I pray for those in the room right now who these issues hit so close to home. God, they feel the reality in their hearts. They, they live it out day by day. God, that the result of what we talk about this morning would not be increased guilt, but it would be just a sure trust in your love. God, I pray for those who are here this morning that are at a crossroads in life, that are dealing with difficult circumstances in life, uncertainty about where they're going next. God, that they would simply remember that you are faithful and that you are good and that you will guide your people to live the life that you've laid out for us. Father, we need humility this morning. And God, we need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ alone. And so God, let us hear that clearly this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 27, Matthew chapter five. Jesus says to them, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, remember the way that this is laid out here in the Sermon on the Mount is you're gonna have six different times here in the middle of chapter five to the end of chapter five where Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, and he's going to pick up something from the Old Testament, often from the law, and then he's going to turn around and say, but I say to you. Now, he's not getting rid of the Old Testament law. We already know this because back in 517, chapter 5 verse 17, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So whatever Jesus is going to say about this, it's going to be a fulfillment of what God's ultimate purpose was in giving the people the law to say, this is how free people live. This is what it looks like to live as my people. And so here, he picks up this Old Testament law, 
that you shall not commit adultery. Now we know from Exodus chapter 20 that this is the seventh commandment that was given and it follows the don't murder command. Why does that matter? Well, because the previous thing that Jesus dealt with in Matthew chapter five was you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be guilty of murder. So he picked up the murder command and said it's actually about anger And now he's going to pick up the adultery command and say it actually goes back to lust. What are we talking about when we talk about adultery? Adultery is sexual intimacy, sexual relationship outside the bounds of marriage. Whether that is before marriage or while married, that you have a sexual relationship, a sexual connection with someone other than your spouse, whether before or after. And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now why is this such a big deal? Because it was not only about adultery between a husband and a wife, between a couple. Adultery was also an image used in the Old Testament for the relationship between the people of God and God himself. And you see this most clearly in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. If you studied the book of Hosea, you know that this theme is all over there. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman. This is not dating advice. This was a very key thing for a prophet to live out. Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, look at what happens in chapter 4. He says, hear the word of the Lord. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God and the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. If you like to write in your Bible, there in Matthew chapter 5, you can write Hosea chapter 4. But it's not hard to see the connections there of what is mentioned about unfaithfulness to God in Hosea chapter 4 and what you find from Jesus in Matthew chapter five. This connection between unfaithfulness to God impacts the way we treat the people around us, leading to things like murder, leading to things like adultery. If you remember from the Old Testament the story of David and his relationship with Bathsheba, how he sees Bathsheba and he says, I want her for myself, and so he commits adultery But what does the adultery ultimately lead to? It leads to murder. And so it's not random that these commands of adultery and murder are held together here because you see it even with the great King David in in the Old Testament. So Jesus is telling the people, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And, And I'm not getting rid of that. But you go back over here to chapter five, verse 28, and this is what you see. Matthew chapter five, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just like the issue of murder was not primarily about murder, it was about anger. In the same way, Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, It would be tempting for the people to say, and the Pharisees were even saying, well, hey, that's good. We haven't committed adultery, so we must be fine before the Lord. 
And Jesus says, it's not primarily about that. It's about what's going on in your heart. It's about what is the root of the issue. And the root is lust. This idea of lustful intent. When you see the phrase underlined up there, who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that's simply the word for desire. It's a desire word that in the New Testament sometimes means desire for good things, but it's the same word that can mean desire for bad things. It's am I desiring the things that God has called me to desire, or am I desiring the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times? He says that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we feel the weight of that, don't we? To know, oh, I'm not so bad. Maybe I've never done this. But Jesus is saying, what's going on inside? What is at the root of your life? What is going on that not everyone around you can see? When you think about this idea of lust, there are two words that we want to think about. Coveting and consuming. And then we're going to talk about how to address those. With lust is connected closely the idea of coveting. Or if, kids, if you don't know the word coveting, it's wanting what someone else has. It's, it's being jealous of what somebody else has. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Remember, in fact, the tenth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. With lust comes the idea of I want something that is not mine to have. I covet or I desire something that is not mine to have. And what we do at that time is we begin to objectify the other person. So now no longer is it another person, but it's an object that I want for my purposes. And we feel the weight of that, right? What it looks like to turn someone else created in God's image, into an object that I desire for my purposes, for my pleasure. And the danger here is remembering, we have to remember that free people, those who have been set free from sin by God's grace, one of the characteristics of those who have been set free is we learn how to live with limits and we learn to live with simplicity. This is one of those great realities of scriptures that comes to us. We think, I've been set free in Christ, so I can do whatever I want to. In fact, one of the greatest gifts of being set free in Christ is learning to live with simplicity, learning to live with limits. And one of the simplest limits is God says, your desire should be for your spouse, that you do not lust after or covet or desire something or someone that is not yours to have because... Coveting leads to consuming. It will consume you. Just like when you are angry towards someone and that anger turns to bitterness and begins to build and build and build and before you know it, that anger is taken over your life. In the same way, when you lust after someone or covet someone who is not yours to have, it begins to take over your life. It dominates your thoughts. It dominates your hearts. It do- your heart, singular. It dominates your actions and your decisions consuming look at the next slide about consuming from James chapter 1 14 and 15 each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust 
then when lust as conceived or, or come to fullness, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I know this is a weighty subject. I know it hits us right in the middle of our lives, but Jesus is very simply saying, don't count yourself righteous before God simply because maybe you have not taken part in adultery. Look at your heart. What do you lust for? What do you long for? What do you covet? What do you desire? And is it things that match God's purposes for your life? If not, we have to confront it. Because if you let it lie there, it will consume you and it will lead to death. So how do we confront lust in our lives? Well, the first thing begins with your view of God. If you struggle in your life with this reality of lust or coveting, and it's beginning to eat you up, you're desiring someone else, or you're constantly drawn to every sexual image or every sexual opportunity, if you find yourself in that situation, you have to begin with how do I view God? What do I truly think about who God is and his role in my life? Because if I don't ultimately think that God's plan is good, and that he desires good for my life, here's what happens. We begin to seek that good in other places or in other ways. So it begins with, do I believe, God, you are good, you are faithful, and you have laid out a good plan and a good path for my life and for my people? If that's true, then I'll set limits, because I know what you have for me is good. But if I doubt that, I seek good in every other place based on my feelings, and based on my desires, and based on what works out for me. So it begins with, how do I view God? Do I ultimately think that he is good and wise and loving? And then it has to do with, how do I view the people around me? So when I look at someone, either directly as a person, or what they own, the things that they have, do I see that person as someone who has also been created in the image of God? that they are a person just like me who God has created and loves and wants the very best for. Because if that's the case, then I will see them in that same way. We'll begin to see people the way that God sees people, created in his image, loved by him. And even beyond that, for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we will see them in that way. And so the idea that I would objectify that person or that I would try to gain pleasure from that person when it's not mine to have, when I lust after them, desire after them, that's cut off because I look at that person and say, no, no, no. They're a brother and sister in Christ. They're someone created in the image of God. They're someone that I've not been called to use, I've been called to protect and love and see them built up in faith. And so I, what I want for them is I want them to have the very best relationship with God. I want them to grow up in their faith, and so I'm not going to do anything, whether by action or in my heart, that is gonna cut them off from the good that God has laid out for them. So when I see God as good, and when I see others as people created in his image for his glory, I'll do everything I can to protect them, and it includes, in fact it begins with, how I feel about them in my heart, what I think about them, in my mind. And on top of that, 
when I look at the community of people around me who God has placed around me, they're not competitors vying after, going after these other people. Instead, this is my church. And let me tell you, and, and this comes from a conversation I had very recently with someone. If you are struggling with lust, and if you are eaten up by pornography in your life especially, there is incredible God-given power in confession. Does that mean staying up in front of the whole church? Pro- probably not. There may be a place for that, it, that that comes. But around people who love you and care for you as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to say, this is consuming my life. I know it is not honoring to the Lord, but to confess that aloud to brothers and sisters who love you and care for you, there's incredible healing and incredible power that comes from that. To know that the church stands with me, not against me, that they love and care for me, and that we are not gonna be consumed by this. We're gonna be able to seek after the things of the Lord. And I'll add to that, the value of older adults, especially older men in the church, who model with their words and their actions sexual holiness and the way that they speak about others, said a different way, among the Jesus people, there's no room for dirty old men. That reality does not exist because when you look at the older men, you look and say, man, they value the women around them. They protect them. They speak well of them. I know from what they're, the way they're acting that they love and care for them. And as a younger man, I looked at that and say, what a great image. Like, what, what a great example to be following after because of the way they treat the people around them. What about before marriage? Let me give you this uh, help. These verses, these hard verses right here, they are not saying anything bad about sexual attraction. So if you're sitting there and thinking, man, I felt attracted to someone before. I must have sinned. No, no, no. That's not a bad thing. It's not saying it's a bad thing to be attracted to someone else. That's a form of Christianity that says you have to leave behind your body and it's just about the soul. It's not about the body. That's no good. Don't go down that road. Nothing about this says attraction or sexual attraction is a bad thing. But what it does say is I'm not going to allow that love to grow up in a way that's inappropriate. And the way that I think about and the way I treat those around me is gonna be as one who is created in the image of God. If I could just give you the simplest help on how does God begin to do this work in, in our hearts, it would be this. The ability, the freedom, and, and I say ability, I should say the God-given ability and freedom to look at someone and say, man, that person is attractive. What is it to me? created by God, maybe a brother and sister in Christ, but not mine. To be able to say, ooh, very attractive, and if not even thinking about physical, sexual attraction, just, wow, they have a great life, they have a great house, they've been blessed with a lot of wonderful things, what is it to me? That's not the life God has called me to live. It's good for them, I celebrate with them, I rejoice with them, but I have the freedom to say, God, I wanna live in a way that honors them and lives out the life that you've laid before me. Such freedom to get to that point of saying, yes, attractive, but what is it to me? How do I respond in a way that honors the Lord? Now, what does Jesus begin to say about this in the next verses? 
He has some very direct comments about how you deal with this. Verse 29. Here's what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. We hadn't gotten to that advice yet, but that was still coming. Um, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members, one part of your body, and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That scripture that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? That's the idea behind here. When it speaks of the eye in verse 29, it's speaking about intent. When it speaks of the hand in verse 30, it's speaking about action. So intent, cut out the intent, cut out the eye, don't, don't allow it to go there, and cut off the hand so there's no possibility that you would take action on, on what you see around you, that coveting or, or that consuming. Let's say a quick thing here about this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does teach purposefully with hyperbole or exaggeration. That doesn't make it not the word of God. It it remains very much absolutely the true word of God given to us in this particular way. How does hyperbole or exaggeration work in these ways? It works in a really unique, powerful way. It works in this way that you say, that sounds like exaggeration. And yet, if at any moment we think, and so it's not a big deal, we've missed the point. This type of teaching that Jesus does, it's meant to be severe so that you look at it and say, oh my word, I better take seriously what God's word says here. And I better be ready to take any action needed to cut out this reality of lust. So if we see that and say, well, Jesus didn't really mean cut out the eye or cut off the hand, therefore it's not a big deal, we completely miss the point of how this teaching is supposed to happen. It's supposed to hit us with a force that says, I will do anything necessary to cut this out, whatever it requires. There's an image that comes to my mind when I think about this, what does it look to cut out or tear out something? If you receive like car magazines or workout magazines or some magazine like that that you know has articles or pictures in there that you don't need to have anything to do with, what I would do um, when, when I receive a magazine like that is just hand it to my wife first. Let her tear out the pages. Like she gets first pick at tearing that stuff out. And you get it back and you're like, there's three pages left in the magazine. That was worth the $4.99 for that. Um, glad we spent that money for that. But it's just this way of saying, I'll tear out everything. Like, get rid of anything. I don't need to tell you what the greatest threat is when it comes just to external threats. It's that dumb rectangle that goes around with you in your pocket. Um, You talk about the danger that, you know, and we've talked about technology all through February and the good. We're not here bashing technology at all. There's so much good that comes with that, that dumb little rectangle that goes around with this or the thing that sits on your wrist. But, when you talk about Matthew 5, 29 and 30, cut out your eye, cut off your hand, we gotta take seriously what that means for that phone. What we do with our phone and with our computer and the, and the role that that plays in, in lust, that we just cut it, cut it all off. 
you know, I know this will come as a shock to you, but you know, like on Facebook and, and Twitter, you're not required to follow all those people. Like, there's an unfriend button. <laughs> there's a way, like, you're, you're not required to do that. You can block things and, and not be exposed to things. It's cutting out. I don't need that. Yeah, that person's attractive. Or yeah, I love what they have. What is it to me? That's not the life I've been called to live. Verse 31. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now you see the connection with the previous section here, right? Where lust, adultery, so quickly leads into the topic of divorce. These are not random connections again. Jesus is making very, very clear connections here. And he says, you have heard Actually, he doesn't say you have heard. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. If you don't have a note in your Bible or your phone, your background here is Deuteronomy chapter 24. So what Jesus is pulling back to here is a couple of verses at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If you guys can go up to that next slide. It says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and then she becomes single again, either through death of a spouse or another divorce, he is not allowed to marry her. Now, those verses from the beginning of chapter 24 seem pretty straightforward. So what's the problem that Jesus is, is confronting here? What he's dealing with is from those verses from Deuteronomy chapter 24, there develop different schools of thought about what makes for a valid divorce among the people of God. Quick little history lesson here, but there were kind of two main groups of Jewish interpretation of the law that began to rise up around this question. There was one very strict group, the Shammai group, that was pretty strict when it came to these, these issues, and, and they kept it primarily to issues dealing with sexual unfaithfulness, similar to how Jesus would. There was another group that was called the Hillel group. They were more free-range, open, you could say liberal, but that doesn't work as well here, when it comes to this issue of divorce. And they said that a man could divorce his wife for essentially any reason. And in the Jewish law, they would give different reasons. One of the reasons was if she burned the dinner, you could divorce her. Well, I mean, hey, you know, look at the log that's on your own eye when it comes to that. Like, if you could make your own dinner, she wouldn't burn it. But uh, if she burns the dinner, you could. And, and even it got to the point that, it got to the point, if you found someone else that you just preferred to her, you could write her a certificate of divorce and move on. And you see how quickly permission leads to permissiveness. This idea that pretty soon people were like, well, as long as I have the paperwork filled out, as long as I follow Deuteronomy 24 and write the certificate of divorce, if she's displeasing to me or has done something indecent, this is the attitude that comes up among the Pharisees at, at this point not realizing 
that at the core of it, this adultery idea is the only thing that can truly break that marriage bond, one flesh, husband and wife. So what does Jesus say in verse 32? In verse 32, in verse 32 it says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's going on here with this, with this contrast? Well, in verse 31, it become, as long as you fill out the paperwork, you can essentially do whatever you want to. You can divorce the other person. But Jesus is saying, if that marriage bond was not truly broken by something like adultery, then you're just setting up a wife swap among you people who say that you're followers of God. This is the idea that you just trade people around, and Jesus is trying to cut that out completely. Now, there's a tough phrase in here where it says, except on the ground of sexual immorality, that's our word porneia, which it's not hard to see where you get a modern word like pornography from that. So it's any type of, of sexual immorality that, that's coming up there. And it's the next phrase, makes her commit adultery. You're like, well, how could the man's action to divorce his wife make her commit adultery? Well, with divorce came almost the certainty that she was going to have to turn around and remarry. Because in that culture, there was no way she was going to survive on her own as a single woman. And so even with these verses, it's not cutting out the reality of remarriage. She's going to turn around, but you put her away when in God's eyes, that original marriage was never truly broken. You just signed a piece of paper to make it easy on yourself. You put her away so when she turns around and marries again, you've put her in a situation where she's going to be seen as an adulteress. That phrasing can also be interpreted, and there's nothing wrong with this as well, makes her the victim of adultery. So in this way of understanding it, husband and wife, man divorces his wife, he turns around and marries again. Well, now she's the victim of adultery because he's gone after another lady when in God's eyes that original marriage was never actually broken. That, that's how that's meant to work there. Makes her, and, and whoever, look at the last phrase as well. This is a hard phrase as well. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Most likely, what you're getting at here is a situation where the wife has manufactured or brought about the reality of a divorce because she wanted to go after someone else. And Jesus is saying, hey, be very careful. You need to know whether or not that original marriage was actually broken in God's eyes or whether she was just looking for a way to get out of it to go after someone else. Big, hard teachings that come right in the middle of our world, our lives. I'll tell you this, when we get to Matthew chapter 19, I have no idea when that'll be, probably in the fall sometime, but when we get to Matthew chapter 19, that chapter comes back around, and, and so we'll spend more time getting into some of the details here, but I just want to say about a couple of things about this this morning and before we move on to the, to the final thing. When we're thinking about how to handle this idea of divorce, how do we respond 
to Matthew chapter five, verses 31 through 32. If you guys could bring up that next slide. Here's how I would say we need to respond to these verses. Number one, our foundation is Christ and the church. So when we're thinking about marriage, we're thinking about marriage as a picture of the gospel. This is what it looks like for Christ to love the church and church to love Christ. And so when we get married, when we think about marriage, it's not just a contract, it's a covenant that portrays the love of God to the world around us. And so this is, this is the picture that we have out there. On top of that, when we think about marriage, we can't separate that subject from what it means to be a part of the church. And here's something I would encourage us on as a church. We live in a world, we live in a world where people have publicized sex and privatized marriage. And we have to figure out a way to swap that. Where marriage becomes a public thing. Where you want people to speak into your decision to get marriage. Now I'm not saying we need to go back around to arrange marriages. Though as my kids get older, that sounds like a really good idea. But uh, I'm not saying we need to come back around to that. But I'm saying that when you're making the decision to move toward marriage, that you're not making that as a private decision. You're saying, I want generational wisdom. I want the gift of the church speaking into that. And so we live in a world where you publicize sex and you privatize marriage. Jesus' people flip that. They publicize marriage. They make it something that's corporate. And the reality, reality of sexual intimacy is private to, to that marriage. People should look at us if we understand Matthew 5, 31 and 32, people should look at us and say they don't even need divorce rules. Sure, there's situations that come where things go wrong, but, but they don't even need those type of rules that our public image matches private reality. Here's my encouragement for you as couples in Christ. What we want to grow toward is that when someone sees you as a couple in public, what they see matches the reality that's there behind closed doors. That the commitment of two people together in public reflects two people who are completely devoted to themselves in private. That we have a public image and a private life and in Christ those two things match up. What if divorce happens? Well obviously we wanna seek reconciliation in, in every way possible. We live with humility this is where the gift of the church becomes so important that you have people that don't abandon you, that love you and care for you and stand with you. What about remarriage? These verses don't cut out remarriage, but what they say is, obviously be cautious, be patient, and in that time, pursue holiness more than you ever have in your whole life. Because you want to know, Lord, I understand what it is to be related to you, that my hope is in you, not in what that marriage was that fell apart. My hope is in you. And so I devote myself to you, and you're going to lay out the path ahead, and I trust you with that. Let's look at the last section here, really quickly as we wrap up. Verse 33. Again, and, and you're going to see quickly how all these three sections fit together. Lust, divorce, and now truth-telling. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. What's going on here? Well, this is the idea of truth-telling, that if you're going to make an oath before the Lord, you need to keep it. You need to say what you mean and mean what you say. Verse 34, 
Jesus says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. In the early church, that verse was used as a rejection of dyeing your hair. So if you dyed your hair a different color, according to the early church, you, you rejected this verse right here. I'm not saying that you did. I'm just saying that interpretation has been out there. What it's saying, though, is you don't need to call on anything else when you make a pledge. What does Jesus say in verse 37? In verse 37, he says this. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, kids, you guys that are in elementary school, if you've ever been taught that when you cross your fingers behind your back and say something, that what you say doesn't actually matter or really hold up, that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing. They were making these oaths to God, but really they had their fingers behind their back, and they said, oh, I didn't actually make the oath in that way, so what I said didn't really matter. Jesus says, we, as Jesus people, don't live with our fingers crossed behind our backs. That when someone hears you speak, they say, yeah, that's what they meant. The gift of being in relationships, that when you hear someone speak, you know they meant that. You know you could take them at their word. You can trust them. In a church, that should be true. In a marriage, that should be true. In a family, that should be true. People will ask, well, should I take an oath in court? Does this mean I shouldn't take an oath in court? No, there's still verses that say we need to respect governing authorities. And so what you do, what should happen, is yes, I take an oath in court, but the judge and the jury should be chuckling like, they don't need to take an oath. They follow Jesus. I know they're going to say what they mean. So do I take an oath? Yes, but my life makes it unnecessary to do that. I didn't really need to do that because they knew that when I spoke, it was going to reflect what was really in my heart. I'm not saying one thing and meaning another. Because if you do that, you back up and you find yourself in adultery and divorce conversations so quickly how these three things fit together. Let's wrap up this way. Lamentations chapter three. In a room like this, most of us have struggled or struggle currently with lust, the reality of broken relationships and marriages, and the temptation to lie, to say something that we don't really mean. Lusting, divorce, and lying. Where's our hope? This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You struggle with lust or with lying? When you wake up tomorrow morning, his mercy is there. He is faithful. This morning, I do not want you to leave under guilt saying, I should be a better person. I want you to leave this morning saying, God is faithful. He is good, and he has laid out a plan for life that goes beyond anything I can ever imagine, and so I'm going to commit myself to him. I'm gonna trust him, 
and follow him and I'm gonna ask his forgiveness for those times that I have not done that. And I'm gonna connect with the church because the people around me stand with me, not against me. I need them when I go through these battles. Let's bow our heads right now. We're gonna wrap up our service by standing to sing the song here in just a moment, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I want us to go out proclaiming the faithfulness of God so that we will be faithful to others. Here in a minute, when we do that, we've seen that song together in just a minute. We're gonna pass the offering plates. We have a chance to put those cards in there in our offering. Father, I pray over the people here this morning, God, I pray a blessing of hope over them. God, I know my own heart. God, I know the temptations for lust the temptations to say something that I know is not true. God, it's with me every day. But Father, we want to live as your people. God, you have been faithful to us. We want to be faithful to others. God, I pray from this morning that you would heal marriages. God, I pray from this morning that you would heal friendships, that when friends speak to one another, they'll know they can trust one another. God, I pray that you would root out pornography, that you would root out lust, that you would root out these relationships that are not supposed to be there, that are being built up. And God, that we would turn back to you because you are good and faithful. And we proclaim that right now together. In Jesus' name, amen.